The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To me, it's kind of a one-off decision. And I read the D.C. Circuit's opinion as, as essentially saying this is the same kind of need, right, that was expressed in Nixon. And I do think that's an important point and one that will have some relevance. But it's because it's so tied to the events of January 6th and the fact that the current president has said, right, that this is a, a need of Congress, I think this is going to have sort of little impact for you know, future disputes where the current president is saying this is not in the public interest to disclose, right? And that we need to protect this for these reasons. And the court's really going to have to grapple with an interbranch dispute that the D.C. Circuit just doesn't have to do in its opinion. So I feel like this opinion, although people will certainly cite it for some of the propositions that Scott says, I think it's very easy to distinguish it and as a kind of a unique one-off circumstance that's really about what happens when they incumbent in Congress are in agreement about a very extraordinary circumstance of an attack on the Capitol. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 21st, 2022. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in the case Trump v. Thompson, denying Donald Trump's motion to block the National Archives from producing his documents to the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. To drill down, I talked with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes, Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson, and Professor Jonathan Schaub of the University of Kentucky College of Law. We discussed the dispute between Trump and the committee, the central issue of executive privilege, and what it all means for the committee's investigation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 22nd, Trump's Documents, the January 6th Committee, and the Supreme Court. So on Wednesday evening, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in Trump v. Thompson. Um, That's the case where Donald Trump is asking the court to block production to the January 6th Congressional Committee of certain documents from his time as president. And these documents were subpoenaed as part of the committee's investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I should note this is not to be confused with Thompson v. Trump, which is the subject of a different podcast that everyone should listen to. So the Supreme Court's decision on this case was actually pretty narrow and at a specific procedural point. So can we start, Ben, with you? Can you talk to us about what the question was before the court and what the questions not before the court were, what these documents are, et cetera, et cetera? And then I want to turn to Jonathan, um, who is our expert on 
All Matters Executive Privilege to give us some legal background? Well, the question before the court was whether to enjoin the production of documents by the National Archive to the January 6th committee or stay the D.C. Circuit opinion that was allowing that production to go forward, and I guess separately, whether to review the D.C. Circuit's decision that the former president, Donald Trump, could not prevail in an assertion of executive privilege to prevent the National Archive from turning over a whole lot of his White House materials uh, to the January 6th committee. So in order to do that, uh, the Supreme Court had to decide not whether it agreed with the D.C. Circuit, but whether to tolerate the D.C. Circuit's opinion as the final word on this matter. Okay. And Jonathan, can you talk to us about executive privilege? Um, Just start with the basics. What is executive privilege? How is it being asserted here? Why does this matter? Uh, Yeah. So executive privilege, which, you know, it's been sort of the thorn in the side of the January 6th committee in a number of different circumstances, but it's basically constitutional doctrine that says if the president determines the disclosure of particular information would harm the public interest, he has the authority to you know, direct that it be withheld. That can apply to testimony or documents. And here, the records are at the National Archives. They're records from the Trump administration. They're records that would normally be covered, at least potentially covered by this privilege. And the Biden administration has, in effect, waived privilege or, or really decided not to assert it um, and says, you know, the public interest favors disclosure. These are extraordinary circumstances. There was an attack on the Capitol tried to prevent the peaceful transition of power. And so privilege is not appropriate here. And then that's, that was the that sort of was the impetus for President Trump's lawsuit, was he uh, sued to say, no, these are my documents. Even though I'm a former president, I want to assert executive privilege and to prevent their release to the January 6th committee. And there is a statutory provision in the Presidential Records Act that allows him to bring this suit. So the question, as it was framed in the litigation, is can a former president you know, assert executive privilege to stop the release of documents, even when the current president says disclosure is in the public interest? OK, great. And just quickly, I'll note that the actual documents at issue here are documents that the committee has sought relating to January 6th and claims of election fraud. Um, so these are things like presidential diaries, schedules, visitor and call logs, correspondence, drafts of speeches, et cetera, et cetera, just so people are aware of what the underlying documents we're talking about are. So in the Supreme Court actually did not say all that much about the outcome here. It it spent a lot of time talking about what it was not doing. But Scott, let me turn to you. Tell us what the Supreme Court said, what its outcome was, and then given that it does not actually talk in very much detail about how to evaluate executive privilege in this situation, can you tell us a little bit about what the D.C. Circuit said in the underlying decision? 
What the Supreme Court said in this decision, which specifically bears on the motion for the stay, we don't actually have, it's worth just flagging up front, a formal denial of cert uh, by the Supreme Court yet. But the fact the Supreme Court said what I'm about to describe strongly implies that they're not going to take up the case or else they would say all these things when they take up the case. But what it says essentially is that they're denying the motion um, to stay the D.C. Circuit's opinion. So the D.C. Circuit's opinion is now remains a controlling law. But it notes in doing so that the D.C. Circuit, in its view, did not need to reach the issue of whether or not a former president can make executive privilege assertions because, and here it kind of quotes from the D.C. Circuit's prior opinion uh, and points to certain provisions where, where it made assertions along these lines. In its view, the D.C. Circuit's opinion could stand on totally separate grounds, which is that even if a former president had the exact same authority as an incumbent president, the request here would fail on the existing sort of balancing tests uh, and other grounds and tests proposed by Trump for why executive privilege should apply here. The actual opinion itself is very ambiguous as to what exactly that means. It kind of broadly points to some general assertions in the D.C. Circuit opinion without clarifying, well, what exact grounds are you saying are the ones that actually control in this case? You have to kind of go back and parse the D.C. Circuit's opinion to figure out what that is, like which grounds you can separate out from an evaluation as to whether Trump is a former president or not. Justice Kavanaugh, who writes a separate opinion uh, along with the court's disposition of the stay, to basically say he specifically has concerns with the proposition reached by the D.C. Circuit that the former presidents cannot make executive privilege. He says that former presidents should be able to, although he has some some caveats about scope and timing and things like that. He actually, though, at the end of his opinions, points specifically to the tests, uh, United States v. Nixon and Special Select Committee v. Nixon, uh, the Supreme Court case and D.C. Circuit case, that are kind of two of the touchstones in this space, and each each really, which lay out and apply a certain type of balancing test, balancing public interest and the equities of the congressional committee in this case, with the interest of the executive branch uh, and the potential interest of disclosing and protecting this information. And that lines up, I think, more or less with the D.C. Circuit's opinion, and particularly with the segments of the D.C. Circuit opinion we see the rest of the court point to. Um, The rest of the court, I should say, minus Justice Thomas, who dissented from this, but didn't give any further explanation as to why. And the long and short of it is, and this is the, the one kind of substantive sentence of it, that the Supreme Court has in its uh, opinion is that it says essentially, look, the fact that Trump is a former president doesn't matter. If you if you were a current president and you applied these tests, his request would have failed anyway. And the question then becomes, well, like what? How how are we going to read the DC Circuit opinion in that light? The parts that jump out to me, but I think that you know Ben and Jonathan should weigh in on this as well because they may have slightly different takes. Are those parts that weigh the public interest and the committee's interests, particularly in this information? If you let the D.C. Circuit opinion stand except for the former president bits, essentially the D.C. Circuit will have concluded that the committee has a totally legitimate legislative purpose here in pursuing these documents, that the documents themselves are actually integral and directly related to that legislative purpose uh, in a way that is necessary to it and therefore kind of counterbalances the, uh, any interest uh, the executive may have in executive privilege here, uh, and that there is a, a, a public interest or public policy overriding interest specifically in 
rule of law principles is the specific hook that we see in the United States v. Nixon, but to this idea where the D.C. Circuit draws a very specific parallel saying, well, look, in the United States v. Nixon, we had concerns about the effectiveness of the criminal process, and that provided a basis for kind of superseding executive privilege or not allowing executive privilege to apply in that case. Here, we are worried about efforts to interfere with the performance of another essential legal process that is the transfer of power, the peaceful transfer of power between one presidential administration to another. And that concern of being interfered with, there's a public interest in that as well. And those to me jump out as the parts of the DC Circuit's opinion that most comfortably check this box as being able to reach the same outcome, even if Trump were a current president, if there weren't the former president calculus working in there. But it's worth noting up front, it's really hard to read the DC Circuit opinion easily this way because it intermingles this assumption and the role that Trump's former status has throughout its kind of evaluation. So those parts jump out as parts that are kind of freestanding to me, I think could be freestanding at least. But it is a very muddy exercise because the DC Circuit's opinion wasn't really clearly written and organized in a way to break out the grounds that can stand separate from the facts that Trump is a former president, not a current president. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. I want to take it back a couple of steps and turn back to you, Ben. So we are in a moment where we have Congress asserting the right to subpoena these documents, President Biden saying, I'm not going to assert executive privilege over these documents. They are housed currently at the National Archives, NARA. Former President Trump saying, I want to assert executive privilege over these documents. What test is being applied to decide who's right here? Well, so as Jonathan Schaub would say, there's no simple answer to that question. So let me give you the not so simple answer. The DC Circuit basically applied two tests. It said, uh, and as Scott rightly says, it intermingles these analyses in a way that is a little bit hard to disentangle. But on the one hand, it says, to the extent that the political branches agree, that is the incumbent president agrees with Congress about the need to produce information, the former president is not going to prevail in a claim of executive privilege over that. The Supreme Court says, ignore that part of the D.C. Circuit opinion. It's all dicta. But the D.C. Circuit also says, assuming that Trump were the incumbent president, he still wouldn't prevail in a balancing test because the congressional interest in investigating this is so pointed and important, and the information is so critical to its investigation, and the subject of its investigation is so obviously a legitimate legislative matter, that uh, even if you assume uh, that Trump were the incumbent president, an executive privilege claim here still wouldn't prevail. And that is the basis in which the Supreme Court kind of defaults to and says, okay, consider the rest dicta, but uh, we're not, you know, we're not going to interfere with that. And so the uh, the question of whether executive privilege applies, I guess the test they're applying is, you know, assume it applies and assume he's the incumbent and apply your balancing test and it fails. That's kind of the the ultimate 
disposition of this, although I think there are a bunch of other aspects of the D.C. Circuit opinion that will necessarily affect the way district courts handle future cases. Okay, Jonathan, let me turn to you. What do you think the D.C. Circuit really said here? Yeah, so I mean, I agree with Ben's sort of interpretation of what the Supreme Court is saying that it understands the D.C. Circuit to have said. I, I think they're, I don't know if they're doing it intentionally or doing it because, you know, this is their, this was their interpretation. Um, I just don't understand how you can read the D.C. Circuit's opinion as sort of an alternative holding. So as, as Ben noted, the Supreme Court seems to tell us, well, the D.C. Circuit held that executive privilege would not apply even if Trump were president. But the D.C. Circuit's, the analysis it points to on page 40 through 46 is premised on the idea that President Biden has said there is a compelling interest in this information, that the committee has in getting this information. And to, so to say that if he were incumbent, that they would reach the same point is to really sort of assume a counterfactual, right? That the D.C. Circuit never addresses and to rely on you know, a compelling interest that wouldn't be there because the D.C. Circuit relies on Biden's findings. So I interpret the Supreme Court opinion in the same way to sort of characterize the D.C. Circuit as having these alternative bases. But I don't think you can really separate the need that's there from this idea that there is an incumbent president who has made the decision about what's in the interest of the United States. And the D.C. Circuit frames its analysis as whether we should sort of review President Biden's determination that this is disclosures in the public interest and so the Supreme Court sort of rewrites that as this, they would reach the same decision, even if President Biden's decision weren't there. And I think that's really hard to pull out of the decision. Okay, Scott, anything to add here? I, I, I take Jonathan's point. I agree with it, that it's hard to like root this out of the overall logic of the opinion because it is so intermingled in a lot of ways. But Supreme Court's pointing to like very specific provisions or or at least little snippets of language where the D.C. Circuit does seem to do just that in this like page range, 40 to 46 is the page range that it points to. And I, the only thing that makes sense to me is to point to those. And that is where it says it, it really draws this direct parallel between the standard that applies to a sitting president and note that this would not even reach it for that standard if this were a case of a sitting president. In page 44, 44, it talks about United States v. Nixon from that perspective. And on page 46, it talks about kind of the accumulation of equities under the Senate Select Committee standard. And I don't think it's a coincidence that those are the two standards that Kavanaugh that refers back to in saying, oh, you know, these are the two standards that Trump fails to meet and would fail to meet even if he were uh, a, a an incumbent president, so I think that's I think those are the parts where it's do it. It, it is it like the clearest that this is what the DC Circuit was leaning on, or is it is it the arc of logic through its opinion? It's not, but I, I I do think that's what the Supreme Court's pointing to. I don't think there's actually too much ambiguity about that, even if it's a, a wonky way to read the DC Circuit opinion in the first place. Okay, and I do want to come back to Justice Kavanaugh's separate statement a little bit later, but Jonathan, I want to turn back to you. Uh, I certainly agree with Scott, and I don't want to sort of get down too much in the weeds that this is that is the specific language, and that is the test for executive privilege, right? The Nixon case, and and whether there is a, an interest that outweighs the executive branch. I just merely want to point out that 
when you talk about the, the balancing that was happening in the D.C. circuit, the balancing they were doing was Trump's claim against Biden's claim. That's, that's the specific framing of those passages they point to. Given that standard, is there a compelling need using Biden's language? And you, to separate that out and say, oh, they were doing the regular executive privilege balancing, which is U.S. v. Nixon, that balancing would be the president's decision about the public interest versus Congress. And so the D.C. Circuit opinion never engages in that specific balancing. And I think the Supreme Court is, is misreading it or it's just saying we think they would have reached that result given all of this information about their compelling need. And so I agree that's what they're saying. I just I think that's dissembling in a way about what the D.C. Circuit was actually doing in the balancing that it was conducting. Okay, it's interesting because I I think that how I read it was that, and I'm not sure that this makes sense, frankly, but the way that I read what they were, what the Supreme Court was trying to do here was to say, listen, the balancing act is the same. It's just that there are, instead of in, as in previous cases, the balance of equities is between three separate parties rather than just the president and Congress. Ben, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, I think there's something else going on here, which is that the Supreme Court has a division, which is visible in Brett Kavanaugh's separate opinion and in Justice Thomas's uh, dissent altogether, but is probably involved more justices than that. It has a division over the question of whether a former president can meaningfully assert executive privilege uh, and prevail over an incumbent president's rejection of executive privilege. But they don't disagree that you uh, don't need to reach this question to resolve this case. And so they're imputing their areas of agreement to the D.C. Circuit holding when, as Jonathan rightly says, it plainly isn't there. The D.C. Circuit is saying something else. But the justices say we understand to the D.C. Circuit to be saying what we would have said if we had been there. And, you know, they're the Supreme Court, so they get to do that. And the result is that you have, you, they've rendered the D.C. Circuit opinion, which was quite carefully crafted, by the way, and has a logic. They've ripped the guts out of the logic of it, but they've gotten to a place that is, in the crudest sense, politically acceptable, which is Trump loses, uh, but they reserve the question for another day of whether under some other circumstances, a former president could assert executive privilege and prevail. Okay. And I do want to circle back on the executive privilege calculus because it seemed to me in the D.C. Circuit opinion, they applied not only the test from U.S. v. Nixon, but also the Mazars case, which is notable, of course, because it's a recent case and it also involved the Trump administration. Would anyone be interested in speaking a little bit more to how the D.C. Circuit treated Mazars and uh, what we can take from that? Yeah, so this is one of the really important things about the D.C. Circuit opinion. And the fact that the Supreme Court doesn't disturb this is one of the really important aspects of the final disposition. Ever since the Democrats took control of Congress or the House uh, and started investigating Trump and the Trump administration, the resistance to nearly every subpoena has been on the basis that the committee in question lacks a valid legislative purpose to investigate the matter, whatever the matter is, whether it's impeachment or whether it's 
January 6th or something else. Here, Trump made that argument and the D.C. Circuit very clearly said there is a legitimate legislative purpose here. And so that is a very important development, both for purposes of the January 6th committee, and I assume we will talk later about how this affects the committee going forward. This is a big deal that it is now law in the D.C. Circuit that the committee has a valid legislative purpose and it can subpoena things pursuant to that legislative purpose and get those subpoenas enforced in the D.C. Circuit, that actually matters for purposes of this committee. But it also matters for Mazar's purposes that when a committee behaves reasonably and dots its I's and crosses its T's, at least in the D.C. Circuit, it's going to be able to have its subpoenas enforced. And and so that, you know, it's been three plus years since the Democrats have been trying to do this in the House, and now they finally have a very clear success. And I think that has a lot of implications, both for the January 6th committee and also how you do your legislative investigative business going forward. Okay. And so you spoke about legislative purpose, which I remarked, actually, the D.C. Circuit did dig into a little bit on top of what was discussed in Mazars. Um Jonathan, coming back to you as resident executive privilege uh, expert, can you can you talk to us more about the legislative purpose piece of this? Yeah, I think this is, uh, as Ben said, this is a very important part of the D.C. Circuit opinion that is, I think, has been little talked about. Um, and part of it comes because the Presidential Records Act actually has a requirement that the committee show that it needs these records for the conduct of its business. And so the D.C. Circuit goes into length about uh, why it has these needs, and it, it talks about it being sort of there are a few more imperative interests squarely within Congress's wheelhouse than ensuring the safe and uninterrupted conduct of its assigned constitutionally assigned business. So it, it very clearly says the January 6th investigation has a purpose, has a very important purpose, and the Supreme Court's decision doesn't undercut that. And to sort of build a little bit on what Ben was saying, you know, the the legislative purpose argument was very seldomly made sort of prior to the Trump administration. The only context in which it really came up, you know, when I was at OLC was uh, the context of like the president's exclusive authority, like the pardon authority, for example, where Congress has no role and thus presumably lacks a legislative uh, purpose because it can't legislate in the area, depending on your view of, of sort of presidential power. But the the Trump administration and OLC and the Trump administration really built up this idea that the executive branch can question whether or not a committee of Congress has a legislative purpose. We saw it in the tax return opinion. We saw it in an opinion released right before Trump left office that said oversight of the White House is almost impossible by Congress because there are few legitimate purposes. So I, this is an argument that was was made and really amplified during the Trump administration and the Mazars case revolved around it as well. And they have continued to make it once out of office. And all of the Meadows and Bannon and, and Trump himself have made this argument. So I think this is a really important sort of put down in terms of January 6th committee, at least, that that argument's not going to fly. And there's a presidential opinion that puts it to rest. And the Supreme Court's opinion doesn't, I, as Ben said, it doesn't interfere with that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, and Mazars was actually at a, a pretty different posture. So, Scott, should we see this as an expansion of Mazars? What what is this doing to Mazars besides just using it as an example of how to do this sort of calculus? Yeah, I mean, I think it's another interesting aspect of the life of the case, and this is a continuing chapter. And you know, Mazars was a case specifically intended to address a congressional request for a president's personal information to a third party, and the extent to which that sort of interaction, even though it's indirect, could still raise separation of powers questions and required some tailor an evaluation of legislative purposes. Ben and Jonathan have noted certainly is a core of that, but also some tailoring of the type of requests, a variety of other kind of balancing factors that go to this multi-factor test. We've seen the D.C. Circuit kind of import that now, uh, previously in the McGahn litigation and a couple other cases as well, to more direct subpoena requests and other separation of powers, contact primarily around these information acquisitions. And it played a role here. It both confirms the that Congress has the ability to get this information and has a right to get it where it has this legislative purpose, but then also countervailing says, but there are also possibilities of abuse and the court has to kind of weigh these different factors. We saw them do that in this case, um, not just on the legislative purpose, element, although that was the main thrust in this particular element. And the Supreme Court, again, seems to have be okay and satisfied by that. I, I think that's notable, um, not just in terms of uh, the legislative purpose element. I think that's probably most relevant for this specific case. But moving forward, it's just another sign that, and this is, to my knowledge, the first time the Supreme Court has had the opportunity to t- revisit again, this idea that those concerns that are raised in that kind of third-party request context actually are reflecting a much broader set of considerations that apply to all these sort of branch-to-branch interactions actions and that, you know, Mazars is settling into this place as another kind of keystone case that the DC circuit's incorporating in in ways that wouldn't naturally flow directly from a presidential perspective from the decision because it is anticipating how the Supreme Court's going to think about these other issues in light of the logic of Mazars and the separation of powers concerns there. Um, so another interesting uh, step in that kind of progression of how the DC circuit's approaching these issues in light of Mazars. Okay, so I think we've touched on this throughout, but to make it sort of a, a concise point, Ben, what can we say about exactly what remains of the D.C. Circuit's opinion, what's been stripped out? Is there anything to the fact that the Supreme Court's order here is not itself binding, as I understand it? How, how should we understand where things stand within the D.C. Circuit? So I think all of the D.C. Circuit opinions still stands. The Supreme Court did not, has not granted cert, has not vacated it, has not reversed it. The Supreme Court advised that it regards the portions of it that deal with the former guy issue as dicta. And I think everybody 
thinking about this should do so aware that there are an unspecified number of justices, at least two who disagree with the D.C. Circuit on this, and some unspecified number who regard it as a, you know, open question on which the D.C. Circuit opined needlessly. That said, if you're a district court judge in Washington, which is where all these executive privilege cases get litigated, uh, I dare say you are going to look at it the way Jonathan does, uh, which is to say, uh, hey, this is uh, actually, notwithstanding the way the Supreme Court has described it, an integrated analysis. The fact that the former president is raising the privilege is central to the D.C. Circuit's analysis. I I think you're going to have a very hard time escaping from, you know, noting that it is all dicta, according to the Supreme Court. Uh, You are going to nonetheless have to take that aspect of it pretty seriously. The parts of the opinion that unambiguously remain and that are now controlling precedent in the D.C. Circuit are uh, A, that there's a legislative purpose, a legitimate legislative purpose for January 6th committee subpoenas. B, that whether the current or the former president asserts executive privilege in response to uh, those subpoenas, he loses because in any balancing test that Trump could imagine, uh, he would not prevail with respect to the committee's uh, needs. And three, at least in these cases, the uh, subpoenas were uh, reasonably tailored to those needs. So I think, you know, I think all of the opinion remains, at least formally, but at a minimum, uh, the parts of the opinion that remain do a lot of work on behalf of the committee that I think we're going to see the fruits of over the next couple months. And Jonathan, how do you say this? Where do things stand with the D.C. Circuit opinion? Yeah, so I think the interesting question here is for whom are we talking about, right? So, yes, if there's a case that gets to the district court, I completely agree with Ben. The district court is going to look to what the D.C. Circuit said in this exhaustive opinion and follow it, even if the Supreme Court said, you know, this was all dicta. But the problem is most of these cases aren't litigated, right? We saw this with Meadows and Bannon. There's never Meadows has filed an action, but the committee didn't go to court. This was all sort of a posturing between Meadows' attorney and the committee about what the law said. And I think the problem with the Supreme Court's doing it in this way and is sort of gutting the D.C. Circuit analysis is now those individuals and witnesses can point to the Supreme Court and say, look, the Supreme Court says it's an unsettled question about a former president's authority to assert privilege. So this is, there's still an open question, and I can, I need to follow what President Trump is saying. And so it gives these witnesses arguments. They can still make these arguments that were foreclosed by the D.C. Circuit. And Supreme Court has sort of opened those back up again. And I think that's problematic going forward because these cases aren't litigated. They're they're negotiated between these two parties based on the available law. Um, And one, I would take one clarification or one uh, slight disagreement with what sort of Ben says about the balancing. I do think this establishes that the Supreme Court, with respect to these particular documents, says the the need of the committee outweighs the privilege interests. But the posture that it arises and one in which 
Trump never made sort of specific claims about documents or information and why the release of those would harm the public interest. So part of it is a record problem, right? It's a failure of, of Trump to put in arguments about specific documents and the damage that would come from the release of them. And so you can, and I think the attorneys for people like Meadows in the future will make these arguments that this case involves these presidential records as a category. It doesn't involve whatever testimony is going to be at issue next. And there may be different considerations there. And so I think it establishes, as we've talked about, that the committee has a need and a compelling need, but I don't think it conclusively resolves the balancing going forward at least as far as parties will feel compelled to comply. I think they still will make arguments that they don't have to comply based on privilege and, and courts may you know, reject those ultimately, but I think those arguments are still available. Okay. So Ben started to touch on this a little bit, but let's talk next about what all of this implies or means directly for all of the other ongoing litigation relating to the January 6th committee's work. So we have a lot of different aspects of challenges to their work going on, including challenges to subpoenas, various people's refusal to comply, some referrals to the Department of Justice for contempt. How should we understand this in terms of its effect on all of those other ongoing litigations? Scott, I'll go to you first. Yeah, that that's a good question. And, and we're going to have to see it how this plays out. And, and and it's something that Jonathan just just got at a little bit in the end of his last response um, about how this is going to play in. And to some extent, I think we have to wait and see to see exactly what litigants do with these cases. You know, I think Jonathan has a valid point that insofar as Bannon and Meadows and other people who were relying upon a direction of former President Trump to not share information wouldn't have been able to rely upon that direction under the D.C. Circuit's original opinion, now can still make that reliance. Um, so I think that there's a factor there that they're still going to have to uh, reason through and say, OK, well, former presidents, it's still open as a possibility. The Supreme Court never reached a question saying that that doesn't apply here. Although, again, the D.C. Circuit has reached the view that that's that's not the case. Um, and uh, presumably, if, if that's the only issue being confronted with, the district courts may feel compelled, D.C. Circuit may feel compelled to abide by that same view, at least until the Supreme Court formally reverses them on it. The opposite side of that equation, though, the side that makes it much more challenging for them, is the fact that you this balancing of equities comes into play. Does that seem to bode very well for them in my mind? Maybe this is an area where I, I see these things maybe a little more optimistically than Jonathan does. I take Jonathan's point that these are negotiated, and so these equities are kind of in the eye of the beholder and and don't draw crisp enough lines that may deter people from being able to engage in the negotiations. But on the, on the other side of this, this was a case demanding the whole universe of documents, not quite, but basically the whole universe of documents held by the White House related to January 6th. Like, it's hard to imagine a broader request for records. Maybe some people like Meadows will say, well, I was the chief of staff. We had some very sensitive conversations. Like, I can't be forced to compel certain things um, regarding Trump about this. So, so maybe there are certain factual distinctions to be made around certain very narrow types of information. But the general idea that the committee is entitled to ask for this whole universe of information and would lose even if Trump were the current president, I think is actually a big obstacle for these people to think that a court's going to come down in their favor at any particular moment. Maybe they'll still hope they can drag it out because any sort of assessment of the facts uh, or of the balancing equities, I should say, you know, is going to get appealed, is going to be kind of case specific and going to get litigated up. 
but I'm not so sure, right? Like it just seems like the facts in this particular case, when it's related to January 6th, the Supreme Court doesn't leave seem to leave a lot of ambiguity about it. And there's not a lot of justices stepping in here to really give a lot of confidence to the idea that there is a balancing test that can be won by Trump. So I, I think there's a flip side there about these, these two sorts of angles. Um, and I tend to think that on net, it's actually going to be harder for these people, despite the lack of that kind of clear dividing line, to really make one of these much of these cases or to be able to use the threat of litigation very effectively as, as a threat in negotiations, because it just seems like, at least as it relates to the January 6th, this is a pretty strong signal that the courts are going to come out and going to be very comfortable saying executive privilege really isn't much use for you here. But Jonathan, what am I missing about that? What What's the, the part of this that I'm skipping out on? Nothing, Scott. I appreciate your your optimism. It's you know breath of fresh air for for my cynical views on privilege, which is you know it can do whatever people want it to do in certain circumstances because there are, there are so few clear answers. But I do think you know the one thing I would say is the court's ruling. So the the way that the White House, the Biden White House, did this was to say yes, you've made this really broad request, and the D.C. Circuit opinion validates that. And as we've said, you know the Supreme Court leaves that in place. But the Biden administration selected the documents, or really the archives did it first, that were the most responsive to the subpoena, the most relevant documents. And so these, this litigation really involves this sort of these documents that are closely tied to January 6th. And the, the Biden administration has actually withheld documents that it said were not as closely tied, that were within the scope of the subpoena. So I'm not sure it establishes that sort of every record or testimony that the committee seeks uh, it has a need for. Uh, since these are somewhat relevant. And the other thing, you know, Scott, your sort of your discussion, I completely agree that people are very unlikely to win in court, particularly after this ruling. I, I think the problem is these very seldomly get to court, right? And that the committee is going to have to rely on a witness who feels compelled by the law to comply and I don't know that the Supreme Court sort of advanced the, the Supreme Court's opinion advances that very much. And in fact, I think it actually moves the ball backward because it undoes the D.C. Circuit's presidential opinion on you know what the former president can do. Uh, so in terms of court and the law that a court would apply, I agree that it puts witnesses and, and people who don't want to comply with the committee in a worse position. But I just don't think these get to court that often. Uh, and I don't know that it establishes sort of clear rules that have to be followed as much as you you might want. Yeah. The one thing I, I would just add there is that, but in those negotiations for these legal holdings to have any relevance, it's the threat of litigation behind that, right? It's it's the fact that Meadows and Bannon can go to the other party and say, yeah, you go ahead and try and prosecute us for contempt. We think we have a colorable enough legal argument underlying our claims to be confident or at least to feign confidence that we will not actually be convicted of contempt. I have to think that this makes those arguments a lot weaker, maybe not as weak as if because they're hinging on President Trump's request for the ones that do hinge on President Trump's request. Like, Maybe not as strongly as if they had just straight out struck, no, President Trump can't make that sort of determination. But it's a similar nexus of facts here. And yeah, I agree. The request isn't everything the committee asked for. That actually wouldn't be as useful for them necessarily because, or yeah, I guess it could still be useful because it, it covers the their sort of request for, for Bannon and Meadows as well. But 
it's still a huge broad swath of information. I don't think actually any of it, the Biden administration actually chose to withhold. My understanding is that they actually got the committee to narrow their requests and remove that. It's a minor point there. But I, I you know, I, I think generally, like, it's just hard to see, given that this was all done in one foul swoop by the Supreme Court, to say that these those minor factual distinctions in this universe of facts are the things that's clearly going to make the difference. Because the Supreme Court had that as an option to go to a case-by-case review of these disclosures. That was actually what the Trump legal team was pushing for. And neither the D.C. Circuit nor the Supreme Court bid on that. Ben, how are you seeing the impact of this case and what it leaves behind and the ambiguities we've been talking about for the broader universe of things happening in connection with the January 6th committee's work? So I kind of agree with both Scott and Jonathan. I, I think somebody who wants to defy a subpoena, we'll do it anyway, right? And these things do tend to be resolved in negotiations, not in court. I don't think Mark Meadows is likely to say, my God, I was wrong. The DC Circuit disagrees with me. Guess I will go and comply with that subpoena or that Steve Bannon will look at the DC Circuit's opinion and say, well, it sure looks like uh, they've rejected my arguments. I guess I'm rightly in contempt. I should plead guilty to my criminal contempt and go go testify and relieve myself of the contemptuous, contumacious behavior. That said, I do think if you're a lawyer for a, a witness who is contemplating non-cooperation, Uh, This limits the uh, advice that you can ethically give that person, actually. Um, It puts you in the position that says, hey, a lot of these arguments are now closed to us. If you're contemplating defying the committee, uh, you are actually contemplating contempt, whereas uh, before you could say there are arguments that I could make and we can be in good faith argue that the law was open on this point. And I think the law is not really open on a lot of key points anymore. Uh, that said, I don't look, I it is perhaps a mark of my low regard for the ethics of a lot of the lawyers in question that I don't think that I don't know that I think that will matter a whole lot. Uh, there is one person for whom it clearly matters, and that is Donald Trump, because if Donald Trump were to receive a subpoena, or for that matter, if if Ivanka Trump or Donald Trump Jr. were to receive a subpoena, the former of which uh, Ivanka received a request for cooperation today, I do think if you're counseling them, uh, you have to say, look, you can't argue anymore that the committee doesn't have a legitimate legislative purpose. And while you can say, well, those documents may not be covered by executive privilege, but my conversations with daddy sure are. Uh, that's a harder argument today than it was a few weeks ago. And and so I, I think the, the, the most important impact is just likely to be on what a uh, reasonable lawyer acting in the within the confines of bar ethics will actually allow him or herself to argue. And I, I think that you know, the more that space narrows, uh, the more people you're going to have who are going to actually just comply with a subpoena rather than go through various contortions to avoid it. Yeah, just uh, to follow up on Ben's point, 
I think, you know, maybe this is an optimistic side of me, but I, I do think that that people and their lawyer on their lawyer's advice tend to follow the law and, and lawyers generally are ethical. And so my takeaway from the Supreme Court's opinion is that, you know, if you left the DC Circuit opinion in place, if they just denied the stay without a word, if they denied cert, if they had summarily affirmed the DC Circuit, you know, without opinion there would actually be a sort of narrower band of ethical advice, I think, that attorneys could give. And by doing it this way, where they issued this sort of cryptic opinion and specifically called out the heart of the analysis of the D.C. Circuit as dicta, they really opened up that ethical window to make these additional arguments about former presidents. You know, they, they, some remain closed, as Ben said, but they've, they've made additional or sort of reopened arguments that I think the D.C. Circuit had closed. Interesting. So obviously, this does have a big impact on what's happening right now. But of course, it will also have an impact going forward. And it's clear, I think it's fair to say from both the Supreme Court's decision and certainly the D.C. Circuit's decision that they are thinking with respect to what this means for future presidents, future former presidents, future congressional investigations. So, Scott, let me come to you first, um, and then I'd like to hear from Jonathan and Ben as well. How do you see this as impacting the future of executive privilege assertions? So I actually think it does in a more interesting way, in part because of the weird thing the Supreme Court has done here. I think if you had left the D.C. Circuit opinion as it was, this is actually kind of the, the inverse of what Jonathan was just describing, I think. If you had left the D.C. Circuit opinion the way it was, I suspect the ruling people would have looked to it primarily towards was on the former president element, meaning that you, if you read the opinion and you said, okay, I'm dealing with an executive privilege request by a current president, yeah, maybe part of this might be said, oh, even if this were an incumbent president, this test wouldn't apply. There's some language to that effect in there. But the main holding is really about former presidents. It's easy to to distinguish the case away on those grounds. It's obviously is this strong thread throughout the opinion as part of the reason why it's so hard to read it. The Supreme Court has said it should. And so for that reason, the actual extended impact of the D.C. Circuit's opinion, I think we more limited to requests by former presidents that end up in court, which are often, I think, historically at least haven't been as quite as big a deal and are less likely to be moving forward as opposed to ones by an incumbent president. Instead, what the Supreme Court has said is, no, ignore all that stuff. The part that we agree with, now in a non-binding sort of way, as Ben's Ben's correctly noted, like in a way that's just dicta from the Supreme Court, but nonetheless is going to carry some weight, I think, at least so long as these justices are around, which is going to be for a while, says that we actually think all these, this whole scenario applies to incumbent presidents and that that's the part that lower court should carry away and the ZC Circuit and DC District Court should carry away. And that's particularly notable because the parts that withstand are actually, I think, arguably a little bit of a broadening or at least a a clarification of the direction of broader exceptions to executive privilege, at least around major kind of unlawful conduct or major conduct that threatens the rule of law. The provision in particular I'm thinking about here is the one part of the language that straddles pages 43 and 44 of the D.C. Circuit opinion, where it draws this very clear parallel um, to United States v. Nixon, where it says, look, in Nixon, the issue there was criminal proceedings were going to be compromised if executive privilege was allowed to apply. And we couldn't let that stand. Our longstanding commitment to the rule of law, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's the quote that they take from the opinion, uh, the, the Supreme Court opinion Nixon. 
wouldn't have allowed that would have been inconsistent. So executive privilege had had to fold there in favor of these other overriding institutional interests. And then they say, and the interest in seeing the peaceful transition of power consistent with the Constitution is an equal, if not greater interest that the same logic applies to and would apply even for an incumbent president. That's actually a big takeaway. That's suggesting that it's not just criminal sort of proceedings or conduct that might warrant that sort of rule of law exception, but it extends to other sort of legal proceedings as well. And I'm not sure if everyone would have conceived of uh, Nixon that way up before this decision. But I I think so long as people read the D.C. Circuit opinion in light of the Supreme Court order, uh, and I think they're going to have to, uh, you know, for for the foreseeable future, I think it's going to be one of those weird non-binding documents that does get cited from moving forward. That puts a lot more emphasis on that, on a a kind of expanded view of, of Nixon that I think people would have been more skeptical to prior to that. That's it. I'm really curious what Jonathan and Ben have to say about that, because I'm, let's uh, say, again, maybe my rosy-eyed uh, glasses view of this. Okay. Jonathan, can you speak to that? What is the future of executive privilege based on this? <laughs> well, I, I, not surprisingly, I guess my my glasses aren't quite as, as rosy-eyed as, as Scott's. But, you know, I think this is, to me, it's kind of a one-off decision. And I read the D.C. Circuit's opinion as, in this part that Scott's referring to, as essentially saying this is the same kind of need, right, that was expressed in Nixon. And I do think that's an important point and one that will have some relevance. But it's because it's so tied to the events of January 6th and the fact that the current president has said, right, that this is a a need of Congress, I think this is going to have sort of little impact for, you know, future disputes where the current president is saying, this is not in the public interest to disclose, right? And that we need to protect this for these reasons. And the court's really going to have to grapple with an interbranch dispute that the DC circuit just doesn't have to do in its opinion. So I feel like this opinion, although people will certainly cite it for some of the propositions that Scott says, I think it's very easy to distinguish it. And as a kind of a unique one-off circumstance, that's really about what happens when a incumbent in Congress are in agreement about a very extraordinary circumstance of an attack on the Capitol. And it's tied to this idea of the former, which is not relevant anymore because the Supreme Court has said that. So I see this as having somewhat, you know, little relevance going forward. And I certainly don't think, you know, the Biden administration, if faced with a Republican House and is claiming privilege, would ever acknowledge or accept, you know, that this D.C. Circuit opinion in some way limits the ability of an incumbent to assert privilege. So, you know, we'll see kind of what happens with it. But I view it as more of we don't want to the Supreme Court doesn't want to deal with January 6th. Let's put it off in a category with the 9-11 commission, with the Iran-Contra investigation, circumstances in which presidents waived privilege and didn't assert privilege. And it, it doesn't really have applicability to when a current president decides to assert privilege. I tend to agree with that. I think the basic proposition that the justices are working here with is that Trump is a purple elephant and we're never going to see these situations again. And they're probably right. You know, like we didn't see with Barack Obama or George W. Bush or, you know, Clinton or Reagan or George H.W. Bush, a situation in which the current president waves executive privilege because the prior president is involved in an insurrection and the prior president Uh, asserts it anyway. And so the justices have to resolve that all in the context of a violent attack on the Capitol. I don't think they're crazy to say, hey, let's try to make as little law as possible based on Donald Trump, 
and you know maybe if the, you know the DC circuit has to so fine but we don't so let's uh you know let things stand there and maybe muddy the waters when they seem to resolve an issue that is beyond uh, you know involves something that we may disagree on amongst ourselves or with them so we'll muddy the waters there so it's it's not so clear but basically we're going to be in a in a very non-interventionist posture here for at least for as long as we can. And I, I think there's, you know, you can applaud that as the passive virtues or decry it as a shirking of responsibility. But I do think their political analysis probably isn't altogether wrong. Okay. I think we are going to have to leave it there. Jonathan, Scott, Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.